all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. This is Robin Long with Women's Liberation Radio News. I am here tonight with Lee Lakeman, who has been with the Vancouver Rape Relief Center pretty much since it started, I believe. Uh, Lee is a longtime activist (coughs) for women's rights. Uh, She's served for 38 years organizing in the front line against violence against women and has been with the Rape Relief Center of Vancouver almost as long as it's been in existence. Is that correct? Oh, there was a few years before me. Uh, I came in 1978 and the center began in 1973. And you actually started one of the earliest uh, women's shelters in Canada. Is that correct? Yes, I did in Ontario, the um, Woodstock Women's Emergency Shelter. And how did you get involved with the Vancouver Rape, Rape Relief Center? Um, <laughs> the boring way. I, I, came <laughs> to, I came to Vancouver because where I had been working in Ontario was a small town, mm-hmm. and I was tired of being a big fish in a small pond. Mm-hmm. So. I came to BC because I had visited before and I knew there was a large group of feminists working here and I thought there'd be lots for me to learn. And then when I got here, I had to find work and there was a job available, (coughs) excuse me, at Vancouver Rape Relief. And the group's name actually is Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. So when I came, there was no shelter, but there was a job working with the Rape Crisis Center. So I lucked out, got that job. Haven't looked back. Wow. And over the years, how has your role with the center changed? Well, I'm now retired. Mm -hmm. So the collective offered me the opportunity to stay connected by making me an honorary member. Mm -hmm. So I don't automatically speak for the collective now, but I'm often given the opportunity to speak. And I stay close to the center because it's my first love politically. So you know, after 40 years experience, I hold a lot of the institutional memory. Mm-hmm. And I've trained a lot of the women who've come through the center. The center is now uh, operated by a collective of 20 plus women, sometimes up to 30. And wow. so, you know, it's a strong, vibrant collective still this many years later. How does a collective of 30 women function together? Are there things about the way it's organized that make the group of women work together more effectively? Or, Oh, it's a fantastic undertaking just to keep the collective going. But I believe, you know, our, our reputation is international at this point. I believe it's obvious that the collective has been able to sustain radical politics by hanging on to that collectivity. So, but to answer your how question, the collective meets regularly. Women are assigned by each other to subgroups of the collective. There are working committees within the collective. But when women join, they've already agreed to a quite specific basis of unity. They've agreed how they're going to work. They've agreed with whom they're going to work. They've agreed on basic political points before they get in. And once you're in the collective, you're both an owner of this building and a totally powerful member of a group that has serious decisions to make. Everyone in the group does crisis work. Everyone in the group 
protects public alliances. Everyone in the group does public education, has a share in the budget decisions. So, you know, it, it's, it's a totally inclusive collective. It's so unusual that, that, um, that can work well. And, and it's also really unusual in, in the larger world as organizations. Um, so many of them are just completely run from the top down. It's great to see that being successful. And yeah. successful since 1973. So it has to reinvent itself constantly. I mean, there's an annual process in which the group confirms each other's membership and confirms its internal structure. And that's taken very seriously. Well, the group has seemed to really maintain its integrity over the years. When so many women's groups have sort of given up a, a radical agenda, you, you've maintained that. How have the services of the group changed over the years or, or the organization? Well, they've expanded. Initially, the four women who founded the group really had hopes of building an agency you know, was the era of the welfare state, even in mm -hmm. Canada. And mm -hmm. so they were trying to create a service that was not available to women anywhere else. But they were politicized women. So their agreement was that they were trying to create a 24-hour line and an advocacy process in which they would support the women who called. But they we're in the course of writing this history down now. So you know, I don't have a chance of telling it all to you, but initially it was just to, to have a very good rape crisis line. But mm -hmm. quickly they realized that unless you keep up the participation in the women's liberation movement, your service just becomes a two-bit, cheaply underpaid service. And it's just a sacrifice of women's work. Mm -hmm. But if you stay active as part of the women's liberation movement, you can make that service the entry point in building a movement so that each woman who calls is a prospective new member of the women's movement and each woman who works here may start out thinking she's just doing a service but she quickly learns that she's able to use the resources and the history of the organization to do women's liberation work in the world. It sounds like involvement with this group would really have a strong impact on how you function as an activist, because all the women coming in are on some level activists. How has it shaped the way you operate in the world? Well, in the house where I started in Ontario, I was the executive director. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I made a choice to not work in a hierarchy. At first, I thought of it as uh, an opportunity for me to experiment with collectivity. But I was very quickly a convert. I mean, I'm a working class woman myself, and I'm now much less formally educated than many of the members of the collective. But I've had the kind of opportunity to act as a feminist that I would never have had in a hierarchy unless I stayed at the top of a small time operation, you know, in a small town. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say how much power the group gave me. But I mean, to give you some examples, I was invited to Moscow to meet with women who were starting rape crisis centers there several years ago. Mm -hmm. I've been to India to speak with women who wanted to compare strategies. I've worked with the great intellectual minds of the feminist movement of our day. None of that would have happened to me without the collective. I could always have team members who were willing to help me 
turn something into an article that might get circulated or would provide me with a speaking opportunity that I might never have been able to organize for myself. That's wonderful. And I'm sure that a lot of other women in the collective have also had the chance to develop themselves as effective activists. I would say every member of the group mm-hmm. has. Mostly when women join the group now, they've never encountered the women's movement before. In my day, you would be a feminist first. But these days, that's very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Mostly women come naive, eager, really wanting to know, maybe thinking of themselves as feminists, but they have no experience of a women's movement yet. It must be mind-blowing for them to be a part of that. Yeah, it was for me, and it's it is for them now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, this amazing organization has been existing in Vancouver for a really long time. How have they changed the community there? I mean, what what have been some of their successes in fighting uh, against violence against women in Vancouver? It's a great question. I think Vancouver now has an extended network of groups that are in close cooperation with each other. Uh, We have five or six groups that are completely solid on the need to abolish prostitution. Mm -hmm. We have groups that have formed around specific issues. For instance, the Asian Women's Coalition started out to fight prostitution, but has now expanded their base to talk about equality in general. We have media that operates within our network. We have cross-class alliances within the network. It's and very, you know, small groups of specifically racialized women, very powerful alliance with indigenous women. So it's a broad, strong feminist network now. And I would say Rape Relief gets a lot of credit for that. That's great. And like you've mentioned, you've done a lot of traveling and networking. So the center has had a big impact internationally as well. Yes, it has. Looking into the past, I I know that um, you were at the center in 89, correct? When the massacre happened at the Ecole Polytechnique. Um, What impact did that have on your collective and how did that change your focus as a group? Oh, well, I'm not sure it changed our focus, but I can remember that that day, one of our members phoned in to alert us that the massacre, at least something dramatic was happening at the Polytechnique. And we had close alliances and still do with women in Quebec in the rape crisis centers, but also now in the abolition work. So at the time, I was already a delegate to the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. So I had contacts in Ottawa and in Quebec for whom I was fearful because as we gradually realized it was only women who were being killed and we realized that the media was not portraying that accurately, in fact, kind of trying to deny it, and that the politicians were absolutely refusing to recognize it as femicide. We got nervous about the likelihood of copycat actions. And in fact, there were several copycat uh, um, actions that men tried to carry out. They were interfered with largely, but nevertheless had happened. So uh, for us, it was a realization that patriarchy was taking yet a new form of male violence against women, that this 
massacre of women students at the Polytechnique was a punishment in the eyes of the attacker for what feminism had done to him. Feminism had gotten in his way, essentially. But it also meant that patriarchy now was making martyrs of those that men could identify as feminists. And we recognized, I recognized, that this new form would have to be contended with one way or another. I mean, it had happened certainly in other places, although less definitively, men were less obvious and clear about attacking feminists and wanting to kill off feminists. And Mm -hmm. I think that era has not ended. We are still in a promotion of anti-feminist activity. I think there's a lot of permission for men to attack feminists now uh, with, with not only not only trashing feminists politically, but actually endangering them. Sure, the incel movement is one of the most recent uh, manifestations of that, and it's chilling. Yes, and and I think women in the third world and indigenous women are absolutely Mm -hmm. suffering abuse and death. What has the center done in regards to the deaths and disappearances of indigenous women in Canada? From the earliest days, which is, you know, close to 1995, we were part of calling on the government to investigate these disappearances. We were quick to recognize that there were multiple mass killers, serial killers at large in the community, particularly targeting women who were trapped in prostitution, but also triggering essentially women who had to live in the public by virtue of poverty, which was true for many Indigenous women. So we've been part of the protest and the demand for examination right from the beginning. We monitored the case of the the man who was convicted eventually of some 40 murders in Canada, although he was part of more than that. And We knew that at the time there were five such serial killers operating in our region of the province. So we've worked for many years with contingents of Indigenous women trying to organize themselves and trying to, you know, put out the call for what's needed to protect Indigenous women. And we still are. Most recently, there's been a government-sponsored examination, although nowhere near as fully an examination as we would have liked. So you don't think that the government has been nearly responsive enough to no. uh, the issue? No, yeah. of course, of course, course not. It's not, you know, it, it doesn't deal with the rape and murder or any form of violence against women against even middle class white women. And it certainly does even less for racialized women, in particular, indigenous women. So, no, there's a great deal that has to change. If you were listing what the first few steps are for the government would be, what would you say? Where do people start in trying to tackle this issue? Well, I think there's two forms. There's a criminal justice response that's needed and a social policy response that's needed. You know, it's our position that we still need governments to take action in the criminal justice system dealing with violence against women and Our analysis, which we 
produced in a report called the CASAC report. Our position is that the first change should be at the level of the investigating police, that they don't do proper investigations of any violence against women. And the more oppressed, the more down in the hierarchy a woman is, the more likely it is that she'll get an inadequate response, that nobody gets a good response. So there's a problem in the courts and there's a problem in sentencing, but there's a much bigger problem in not investigating and getting those cases to court when they should. So that's the criminal justice response. But it's also true that women are selected as subjects of violence. They're selected by accessibility. Obviously, women are threatened by the men in their houses and by the men in their lives. But the more poor you are and the more public you are, the more racialized you are, the more you are also targets of violence because you're subject to all the men above you in the hierarchy. So our intentional participation as part of the left uprising is designed to try and deal with that inequality. Unless we develop a society that transforms itself into a much more equal one, we will continue to see disproportionate attacks on women and on poor and racialized women. Speaking of women who are very disadvantaged, one of the divisions within different branches of feminism has been how to support prostitutes, or as liberal feminists like to call them, sex workers. Tell us, how has the center worked on this issue? And what would you have to say to liberal feminists who claim that being pro-prostitution is a feminist act? Well, I've been saying it for 30 or 40 years now, so I have a lot to say. But the first thing is, if you think it's so great, you do it. The people that I know don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Prostitution is, in my mind, the cutting edge of feminism at the moment. The struggle against prostitution is the global struggle. And it's the struggle that includes the way feminism can fight racism, can fight poverty, and can fight globalization, really. So it's been clear to me from my first work, even in my first work in Ontario, most of the women who I met who had been involved in prostitution had been pressed into it by incest when they were young, by poverty as young adults, and by a desperate need for help with their children when they were adult. So I've been clear all the way along that prostitution was not a desirable future uh, in most women's minds. And it's certainly a short future for many women. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, should you survive and continue for long, it's a hellish life. But we used to have a position that the most important thing was to get the law off the backs of the prostituted women. But then there came a time, I think as neoliberalism strengthened, that we realized we didn't need to put up with legalizing the men in prostitution in order to get the law off the backs of the women in prostitution. And that was a really significant advance. So in the early days, we would have said legalize for the sake of the women. But the movement grew up and realized we don't have to accept that. We can take sex 
seriously in the question of prostitution. And we can say what the men are doing is unacceptable. What the women are doing is just survival behavior. What we have to do is deal with changing the men and use the law against the men. And when that became a global discussion, as it is now, it became more and more clear that the movement to end prostitution is a fantastically integrated movement that is anti-class division, class oppression, anti-racism, anti-imperialism, that it's feminism's step in this moment. So I'm more adamant than I've ever been. And I think the movement has been spectacular in beginning to build a global resistance to prostitution. Absolutely. Yes. I, I love the fact that women are actually arguing about it now as well. Hopefully yeah. it, it will help us to somehow bring these women over to a more radical understanding of, of the place of women in, in the world. Well, maybe Ooh. it will, but you know, the history of winning over all the liberals is not great. I mean, <laughs> I think it's important to remember that the majority of the world is women and the majority of women are brown and poor. And unless our analysis faces up to that, it's got nowhere to go. So it's not so important to me to convince all the white girls in university or the few privileged women of color in university. It's much more important to me to recognize the desperation of the poor brown women who are not so thrilled about being offered a future of sex slavery. Yes. And so it's not just making it illegal for the men to buy the sexual services of women, but supporting women themselves and empowering and, and themselves and, and finding alternate work and training. And yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that is the hard call because we're also in this neoliberal moment where governments are withholding the resources that are mm -hmm. their obligation to redistribute. So, you know, this is when we're relying on there being the rest of the left in full mm -hmm. action and they're not there yet. You are listening to WLRN. Another uh, challenge that the center has really had to struggle with over the years is the whole Kimberly Nixon case. Can you talk about that? Sure. So Kimberly Nixon was a trans-identified male who wanted to join the collective as a crisis counselor. Is that the, the story? It's close. He had managed to get himself into a support group in another group called Bad Women Support Services mm -hmm. because one of the counselors there, uh, a liberal, cheated and let him into the group, even though the group had a policy against that, and then kind of got caught out. So the group used the excuse, you know, another a liberal excuse of saying to Nixon, well, you can't really join the group or get hired in our group because your battering is too recent. And I don't know if you know, but in, in many liberal anti-violence groups, that's the excuse that's used to control the membership. Mm -hmm. So I think Nixon had probably figured out that we didn't have that policy, that if you want to act, we don't have a criteria that said, you have to be cured before you can be rebellious because we didn't think of violence against women as illness. Mm -hmm. 
So Nixon appeared one evening in a kind of screening process that we had. We used to let anyone come to the screening process who was interested in training. And in that situation, he was identified. At least the rape relief women who were there, there were three or four women working that night. I was not one of them. But one of them at least recognized that this was a street person. And that would be the colloquialism at the time, the, uh, sort of a member of the demi-monde in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And she knew that because she had been a prostitute on the street and she knew. So she approached Nixon that night and said, how long have you been living as a woman? She approached him in private and talked to him respectfully and, in fact, was compassionate. And Nixon was furious and the next morning went to the Human Rights Commission and complained that it was bigotry to ask. And from then on claimed that what he wanted was to be a member of the group and to be able to volunteer. I don't think actually he knew anything about the collectivity. He just wanted in. Mm-hmm. And in those days, transition or attempting to transition or believing you could transition was a very, very unusual thing. This was 1995. Sure. So, um, but, you know, liberals abound. So in the <laughs> process of trying to complain that human rights had been breached, he ran into a coalition that was willing to help. And that coalition had members of it who were anti-rape relief anyway. So he got plenty of help right away and then found a lawyer who was very happy to see herself as a messiah in this situation. And there began a case that went for uh, more than 10 years. And we lost at the first round, the local round, because too many people had drunk the Kool-Aid. And we did have expert feminist legal assistance. And thank God, because we couldn't have possibly paid for that amount of help. And we did really examine ourselves and really think about this. And we decided at the time that the issue for us was that this person did not have the lived experience of growing up as a girl to a woman and therefore could not participate in our 101 crisis work or public education work or even function in the collective as an equal because we rely on that experience of being a girl and growing into a woman. It's the fundamental conversation in our group. You know, it's what you say to a woman who calls. I may not have had your experience, but I remember like you what it's like to stand at a bus stop and be frightened. I like you remember you know, both the fear of being pregnant and the fear I'd never be pregnant. I, like you, remember the sexual harassment of a leering teacher or a first date. And that's the experiences that Nixon didn't have. And also, therefore, could not understand the unity that we were calling on, the shared oppression experience that we were calling on, out of which builds our intention to change the world. You know, addressing the trans issue has torn apart a lot of women's organizations. Was there a lot of internal strife in the center over this, or or were you able to reach a consensus pretty easily? We were able to reach a consensus quite early and quite easily. 
because remember we have a very long process of coming into the collective so Mm -hmm. once you're in the collective you've agreed that women are oppressed you've agreed that the group is about liberating women you've agreed on our methodologies we didn't have a basis of unity point about trans but when we were called on in court, all of us answered in a very similar way, our own words and our own experience, but we answered in a very similar way that women are born into conditions of oppression and that that's what we have in common. And Nixon was not. Nixon made a decision that he believed he could change sex in his 40s mm-hmm. and went from being a pilot for rich airline owning characters while dressed in women's underwear he went from that to trying to pass as a woman obviously it didn't pass that's why we knew sure well is the center still under attack for their position on trans inclusiveness yes always always and has it had a big impact on your ability to fund yourselves or at various points it's threatened our funding um but About funding, we are also radical. We've always had a process, since my first year, we've had a process of winning over community support and community funding mechanisms that meant we were never totally dependent on government funding. At one point, we lost the government funding and we could stay operating for 10 years. We did. Wow. Yeah, it's intentional on our part that what we want is the support from our community. And we tell people, this is not a good job. You don't don't want to work here. Like, if you want to work here, it should be because you really want to be politically active and getting a salary means you don't have to have another job. But it's not an easy place to work. It's not a career future. It remains a grassroots, seriously committed collective of women fighting for our own and other women's liberation. And we tell that to the public. We don't think there's any point in disguising that or in pretending that's not what we are. It is what we are. I think we get the government funding because we have that much public support. I mean, without public support, you would have a really hard time still being here. Definitely. You retired from the center. What have you been doing since then? (laughs) Working here, but on my own terms. <laughs> I have been uh, offered the opportunity from the collective to write the history of the organization up to here. So I'm working on that, but I'm also still politically active in my own name. There's mm-hmm. been plenty to do. And when I left the collective, I left because I was old enough that it was impossible for me to do an equal share of the crisis work. And I'm very serious about the belief that every member should be doing that, mm-hmm. that that's still the base of the work. So I, I needed to accept that I would leave the group uh, rather than change the structure of the group. And that suits all of us, I think. Uh, you know, it, it meant I had to learn new ways of, of allying with the collective and being careful about what the boundaries are, but we've all been doing that. Of course, you know, I'll love this collective forever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, When do you think your book is going to be finished? Well, it's very slow. You know, partly I'm a pretty good writer, I would say, but I'm not a practice writer and I'm not a practice researcher and I'm not formally educated. So it's a slow process, but I'm hoping that in the next couple of years it'll be done. 
I look forward to hearing about it. Right. So <laughs> um, there's going to be an event coming up with the uh, Rape Relief Center. They're hosting an International Women's Day event. Do you know anything about it? Are you working with them on it? It's going to feature Winona LaDuc. Yes, it will. I've been asked to speak a little bit on that evening. So, yeah, I know a bit about it. So uh, if you're in the Vancouver area, you might want to look into attending that. You also spoke with Megan Murphy at the library event. How was that for you? Well, uh, Megan had asked me a month or two before whether I would be willing when she was trying to set up the meeting. And I said I wanted to talk about it ahead of time. But when the library started to interfere with her capacity to speak, I decided it was important that I join her. And so I did. And it was a very interesting process. It was very frightening in advance of the speaking engagement because I've been here many times before when rape relief was taking the role of breaking the taboo. And there clearly was a taboo about daring to discuss the gender ideology and the trans ideology in this situation. There's a very tight lockdown against the feminist positions. And there was a lot of nonsense on the internet ahead of time, threatening nonsense that made the couple of women who were trying to organize that event, and even me, who's you know an old practice hand now, frightened us. And the women who were organizing were frightened enough that they raised money and hired private security. And they also felt the need to press the library for security as well. Mm -hmm. My own position was that I don't like that kind of security. I don't want that kind of security. So, so there were some things to work out ahead of time. But I thought it was very, very important that we achieve that discussion. And mm -hmm. we did indeed fill the house. There was a, at least 300 people there. There was a lot of talk about it ahead of time. It was a very, very successful evening. So Megan gave her speech challenging the ideology, and my preference was to talk about what's this fight got to do with feminism, got to do with women's liberation. So those videos exist so people can think for themselves what they think of the two speeches, but certainly both speeches were very well received, and the crowd of 300 people made it very clear that they did want to talk about this. There's been a lot of excitement generated, I think, by this event. I think so, too. I have one final question to ask you. A lot of young feminists are feeling a lot of despair over the fact that, you know, longstanding women's organizations aren't supporting their interests anymore. Uh, the lesbian community has largely gone underground in a lot of places. What advice would you have for young activists who are just starting to form their own communities? And what kind of tools do you think that second wave feminists have to offer to these young women? Great question, the subject of the book. First of all, I think we are not done with consciousness raising. So my first advice to any young woman who is not happy with the world she's living in is get in a small group of women, start telling the truth to each other about your lives, and start listening hard to each other about what do you have in common, because that will give you a picture of the patriarchy that you're living in. And out of that, you may well see possible strategies and things you need to learn to be able to enact those strategies. Women who are living in the industrialized West still have the possibility 
of taking control back of women's centers, transition houses, and rape crisis centers. And while I don't think that's the only way to work, I think it's still an important way to work. But each one requires a specific strategy. Um, in the States, many of those places are now warehouses run by gigantic hierarchies that are very tough to fight. But some are not. In Canada and in England, in other places in the industrialized West, it's still possible to take control of what was built by other feminists and has fallen into the hands of a small hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how you do that is different in each place, but it usually involves getting on the board, taking over, and start fighting for the things you should be fighting for. So that's one thing. Um, I don't talk about building community, although I think community is important. I talk about building the movement, and building a movement is different than building a community. I think our movements have to have community elements to them, but they're fundamentally movements. And that means the politics comes first. What works for the politics comes first. And uh, you don't try and be everything to everybody or the nicest girl in town. You try and be the toughest girl in town and the most effective girl in town. And there's a lot of learned lessons in the second wave that are still available to young women trying to get started I think, you know, it, it's notable that the second wave feminists had a commitment to nonviolence, had a commitment to egalitarian practices within our groups. We didn't always succeed. We didn't often totally succeed, but those were important principles. I think it's important if you're doing any kind of service-based work to draw into the decision-making bodies women that are the same as the women you're serving, the same in terms of class, race, and sex. And I think you can't afford to be ignorant anymore. The, one has to actually learn what neoliberalism means, has to learn what movement means, what the history of this second wave movement has been, because there's corrections to be made. There's things we need to do better but there were great lessons on how we might do things. I think that the inclination toward welfare state after the Second World War gave the second wave the possibility of building a movement by using services. And that strategy may not be available to the next generation. So I don't think we should give up what we built so easily. But I do think there'll need to be new kinds of formations and new strategies that deal with this very conservative world and very neoliberally economically controlled world. Clearly, the protection of the environment and the interference with capitalist destruction of the environment is a critically important issue at the moment. And so far, the groups that are involving themselves are not dealing with feminism. But, you know, a feminist intrusion into that process is important. But so is the anti-imperial inclination. We have to deal with the development of China, the American empire collapsing. All those things are relevant materials for feminists trying to figure out what to do. The thing I would advise against is doing all your politics on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work. 
it's not a good place for thinking, for struggling, for being inventive at all. And people say too much, forget that you're living in a surveillance state. So I would advise against that. But everybody's got a locale. Everybody's got things that can be done in your own neighborhood, in your own city that connect to the international struggles. And that is what I think made Rape Relief so successful. It took very seriously, organize locally, think globally. And do it face-to-face as much as you can. Do it face-to-face because that's the only way there is to do it. Also, you raise the point integrity. I think you don't always know who's watching and you don't always know what the impact will be long-term. So you want to build a history that you're glad to have exposed. Well, when women are looking for heroes in the movement, um, who are, are some of the women at this time who are making a big difference that they can start reading or watching? Oh, there's, there's millions. I mean, the women in Guatemala who are fighting to protect their land base against the Canadian mining companies are extremely impressive to me. The indigenous women North America wide who are protecting the water and protecting their own communities are spectacular in their leadership at this moment. We have a critical mass of feminist lawyers that have not yet totally aged out that are being useful right across the industrialized world. There are women organizing labor in the third world that are struggling against incredible odds. The women working against trafficking and cooperating with the women working against domestic prostitution are critically important right now. It's just a huge list of fabulous women working. It's so easy right now in this time of growing conservatism and anti-feminist discourse to feel really discouraged, but it sounds like all across the globe there are amazing things happening for women. And everyone who's listening to this program can find ways to get involved in that. That's right. And if you don't know anything else to do, contact Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. Now, in addition to your book, what are you looking forward to? What do you have next in your agenda? Well, <laughs> that, that's the big one. Yep, that's <laughs> fun. Um, I am taking advantage of the fact that I'm in my 70s now and I get to take some time for myself and because I'm not doing regular overnight crisis work or, um, you know, being on call for a lot of women, I can do things I couldn't do any other time in my adult life. I'm, I sing and I'm in a group of singers. I go to things and study things and read things that I've wanted to for years. You're catching up on your sleep. (laughs) I, I I always slept pretty well. That's kind oh, of that's good. Thing. Yeah, but you're um, writing. I'm writing, and uh, and I consider it, you know, part of my luxury that I get to continue supporting Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. Thanks for tuning in to this extended interview with Lee Lakeman. Lee's been a powerful voice for women for 46 years. She's a collective member of the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter from 1978 to 2012 and is currently writing a history of 40 years of collective work at that organization. This is Robin Long. You can follow WLRN on Facebook, Twitter, WordPress, and Tumblr. 
Thanks for listening to Women's Liberation Radio News.